Welcome to From Ashes to Beauty with John Ortberg. Each day, Monday through Friday, you'll find 10 minutes of relevant spiritual guidance on the kind of people we are becoming. Follow us on YouTube at becomenew.me or receive daily text alerts when a new episode is published by texting the word BECOME to the number 56525. Invite a friend to listen along by sharing this podcast or sharing the link becomenew.me. We're glad you're here. And now, here's John. I'm really glad you guys are with us today. We're on this journey from ashes to beauty. And we're talking about uh, today, how do we uh, let ourselves be known to another person? And I wanted to show you, one of you sent me this picture, Fellowship of the Withered Hand. It was a wonderful note just describing uh, somebody's personal journey and an injury that's kind of left them scarred uh, in this part of their body. And, and that idea that um, we are together because we celebrate the recognition of personal inadequacy and our need for God and our need for help and our need for grace. I can't, God can, I surrender, I examine myself, but then I'm willing to let somebody else see that withered hand. I'm willing to let somebody else see my character defects and flaws, and that's really scary, and we need some professional help for this one. So today, I want to uh, introduce to all of you who might not know him, a very good friend of mine, guy that I mentioned yesterday, who is somebody that I share my character defects with, and that's Rick Blackman. So Rick, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much, John. I've loved the series up to this point. I am a charter member also of the Fellowship of the Withered Hand, and you know the last couple of years have been rough in my life with my wife and a big medical issue. Uh, so I'm just so enjoying this. And of course, we, you, you and I get to talk a lot too. So that's been fun. Um, Rick and I have been on this journey uh, where we share uh, with each other the uh, temptations, sins, things that we wrestle with uh, on a regular basis. And that's been such a helpful thing to me. I cannot imagine going through life without that. Rick also does that professionally. He is a clinical psychologist. And so, Rick, I thought we could start by talking a little bit about this whole idea of being known. Um, it's such a powerful thought, and we all want to be known, but we're afraid to be known, and you deal with that with folks that you see every day. Um, what is it about being known that is so powerful, and how important is it to a healthy life and soul? You know, um, when I think over these years now of being a counselor of intimacy, um, close intimacy, be it a, in a friendship or with your children or uh, in your marriage or with people, I always think firstly about that idea. I always think of it as a function of knowing and being known. And what you said yesterday just so synced up with how it hits me that we cannot feel loved without being known, and we cannot, just to quote you from yesterday, feel fully loved without being fully known. So that is very scary. Uh, I think it's even very scary in the very closest of relationships, like marriage. I just am amazed how many people come in, and I really think if I'm going to be helpful to that couple, then it's always um, trying to increase that dimension of knowing and being known. Um. If it is such a powerful healing thing to be known, um, why is it that we uh, run from it so much? Why do people hide and 
because you talk with lots of folks about these kind of issues, how much is loneliness and hiddenness an issue for people? Oh, loneliness. I've been giving a number of talks uh, during the pandemic just about it because it has increased the feeling of loneliness, partly just with the quarantining um, aspect. But even people are often at home with loved ones and around each other way more than normal and still feel lonely. Um, so I, I think sometimes it's having uh, painful experiences with being known. Um, and, and feeling either judged or condemned or criticized for flaws. And of course, the people closest to us always know all of our flaws and, uh, and difficulties uh, more intimately, even if we don't know that they know them. So I just think it's very frightening. And you, you have to really have an experience where you are loved for who you are. That What were you calling it yesterday, that uh, sort of second coding, that outward coding that we use? Um, to make ourselves presentable, to deal with our reputation. Um, and that seems so embedded in, in probably every culture, but certainly in our culture in America, um, to put on a good face and play to your strengths. Um, so the very things that, that push us in culture to be outstanding, to be achievers, to be liked, to have a good reputation, seem to me to go very counter to the very lessons that you have been sharing with us about knowing for certain that the thing that we want to do to please God and be our best self, we can't do, but we need God to celebrate our inadequacy. Um, so I, I think what you're doing and is, is kind of countercultural and, and yet so much the road to liberation uh, and freedom. Uh, if it's true that God is the one that forgives us, and once God wipes our slate clean, we are forgiven, and we don't need anybody else to stand in that gap for us between us and God, why should I have to go through the humiliation of confessing things to another person as well? You know, the first thing that comes to my mind with that question is that verse, you would probably know where it is, maybe in James, about uh, confessing your sins to one another. So it certainly seemed right to me, uh, the idea that I would just need to confess my sin to God and that he would forgive them. But I think maybe it's anecdotal and experiential, but it seems like everybody has the experience that there's something much more powerful about going through the road of, um, you just use that word, humiliation, uh, inadequacy, and letting another person see it. And frankly, you said something yesterday about when you select a person, trying to have somebody who had a kind of fearless quality, who was willing to not only love you, but um, understand that there are flaws and that there are parts of you. And so when you're laying out confessing, to me, really what this whole discussion is about is confession. That verse in James, who is Jesus's brother? Um, and he says in uh, James five sixteen, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. And so there seems to be a connection between confessing and prayer on the one hand and then healing. And that um, there's something about, you know, uh, before I tell you something, when I don't want to tell you, and even after all these years, I will still feel scared or anxious yeah, or yes. uh, I'll feel resistant inside me. 
And then after I tell you, I always feel a sense of relief and like I've done a difficult thing and I can look the world a little more squarely in the eye and I feel closer to God. Um, but the, the challenge of it, the resistance and the vulnerability never goes away. I still, so it, somehow it seems like um, there is a kind of healing that comes from being open with another person that does not come as long as things are hidden. Um, I think there is something very powerful. I feel like I want to say that in this particular session, not only doing that one time, though the experience that you talked about yesterday where you laid it out, and actually, I don't know if you remember, John, you've actually done that a couple of times. You've prepared. Well, believe me, uh, I remember. Yeah, a couple of times, and they were just such powerful experiences. I, I was thinking about that. I've never asked you this question before. The first time that I did that with you is now a couple of decades ago. And I was saying, I, I felt so vulnerable. I felt like my soul was in your hands. And then I, I've just never forgotten that sentence when you said, I've never loved you more than I love you right now. I, that's the last thing I expected. Where did that come from? Do you remember saying that? Do you remember what was going on inside you that prompted those words? You know, if I'm honest uh, about that, I think way back then, I loved being friends with you you are a very accomplished person. You're good at most of the things that you do. And I really like that about you. And I like playing sports with you and talking about uh, Sherlock Holmes and the Chicago Cubs and the LA Dodgers and all the different things that we share in common. But I think if I'm honest, I maybe felt just a little bit intimidated and that there was something I have really appreciated all the way back then and now through the years about your letting me, and I would say others as well, but certainly me, your good friend from graduate school, see the less accomplished side of you, the side that sometimes wanted to um, present a good image. And it just started increasing my affection for you. I wasn't planning to say anything like that, John, but I just know I felt it so deeply, like, man, I love this guy even more knowing that he's flawed and like me, to be honest, like because I have flaws and I know that they're there, whether other people see them or not. So I, I honestly, it just came right spontaneously out of my insides. But I, I think as you asked me the question, I could just feel, I just do love you more. I still do even more than way back then because you let me see uh, that side. And I've watched you grow like in that way, just generally speaking. I, I, I never knew that. And um, uh, it's so, I don't know what the word is, um, ironic, something to keep working on, that the very things that I do, uh, try to be impressive, try to achieve, to get people to love me, to get you to love me, become the things that get in the way, because then I'm not just real. And, so uh, to die to the things that I think will help me get love is actually what makes love possible. So uh, I've always been grateful for that statement. Um, for anybody who's watching us, Rick, where they're thinking about um, would I take next steps in finding a friend that I could take this step with, or maybe seeing a therapist or seeing a pastor or somebody, uh, 
obviously it's not wise if I don't know that that other person is trustworthy to share with them information that could hurt me or other people. Uh, what do you look for when you're trying to find a person where you can uh, reveal to them uh, the, the truth about what you struggle with? Yeah, and I certainly do think, obviously, I've been a therapist, so I believe sometimes jump-starting something like that with a therapist or a pastor who can serve as such a powerful uh, confessor uh, is a good idea. But somebody trustworthy, somebody you were saying yesterday, I remember, uh, somebody whose character you admire, uh, somebody who is on the journey. I love the idea that this kind of relationship can be mutual. And so is wanting to grow, to know themselves better, and to reveal more and more about themselves to others and to God. But even in looking and being careful, I don't want to pretend that there's not a risk. I still think it was a risk for you. It's a risk for me. It's a risk for me still when I share deep, hard things with my wife uh, about myself. So I think that's just going to be there. And, you know, hopefully you might make a statement together about confidentiality. Uh, certainly it would feel so wrong if I ever shared a single thing uh, that someone shared with me in confidence. Um, and, and that would be a certain kind of betrayal. Yeah, I was going to say, I think of two different kinds of risk. One, it just feels risky because I'm scared. How will you respond and so there's that sense of um, fear and vulnerability attached to it. And that never goes away. Yeah. On the other hand, there would be another kind of risk. Will Rick use this by gossiping about me with other people? Will he betray my confidence? Will he inflict cruel pain on me? And that kind of risk, I feel like I know you well enough that I, it, that risk never feels present for me. And I think I'd want folks who are listening to us to know how to either build a trusting relationship or go to a therapist or a pastor or somebody who understands about confidentiality. And so the first risk, type A risk, it's gonna feel scary, I'm gonna feel vulnerable, that's okay. But I never wanna encourage people to risk telling something to an untrustworthy person where they could be damaged by it. And, and one tip that a spiritual director a person in my life once shared with me about that, he said it works best if you select somebody and go approach them. It works less well if somebody comes to you and says, I'd like to be your confessor, right? Yeah. Uh, he said, then you should run. Yes, then you should run. So. Yeah. so, Rick, we've gotten a lot of responses from people about what would it take to have a fully disclosing relationship and what are the barriers that get in the way? Uh, fear of being judged by somebody else, uh, afraid that the trust I would give that person might be violated. It looks like uh, that sense of fear is yeah. by far the number one. Just look at that. Embarrassment is a big one, John. A lot of people talk about embarrassment. Um, fear, 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 fear. And I, I think of... Uh, you know, all the way back to when human beings experienced that fall. And what happened was we went from having uh, to be known and to know being our greatest joy to it also being our greatest fear. 
And when God says to Adam, where are you? And Adam's response was, I heard you in the garden. I knew you wanted to be with me, but I was ashamed. I knew I was naked. I was afraid, and so I hid. And that sense of fear is still the number one barrier. How does somebody get over the fear barrier to be able to disclose with another person? You know, I'm just looking at they're all related to fear, fear of being weird and being criticized. Um, you know, John, I like to say this once in a while. If you read a hundred books on fear and dealing with fear, yeah. they would boil down, this is one author said this years ago, to one sentence. Feel the fear and do it anyways. So that's that risk part. Like we apparently just looking at all these answers, I'm kind of overwhelmed looking at uh, how many pages there are of this. Um, that is just something to name, own, and then overcome. Another word that comes up an awful lot here is shame. How do you think about shame and uh, how that can keep us from disclosing, but Well, I've benefited a lot from the work of Brene Brown, of course, lately. Just that shame idea being a general feeling of unworthiness mm -hmm. and that shame in distinction to guilt, guilt being more about misdeeds and sinful behaviors um, and shame having much more of a who I am quality to it. I feel badly about who I am. And I just think it's an invitation to take in the gospel. I've always thought that's one thing I like about being a Christian psychologist. If people are open to that, they aren't always, but that that would be one of the, the antidotes, one of the tonics to shame. And I see shame and pride, by the way, that both of those words just came up a lot in those lists that people sent. Um, and, and so shame is a thing to work on for a long time, but I think it kind of circles back around to where we started this conversation, being loved, for who we are is the best answer to shame. And to be able to experience that with another human being as a conduit and a vehicle to experiencing that with God. You, you quoted Henry Nouwen to me and I put it on a piece of paper, um, a little line that said, God loves me and God's love is enough. And I wore that through so much. Wow. Yeah, I, we've been talking also about this book by Eleanor Stump, Wandering in Darkness, has been so helpful to me. And uh, she, she actually writes that um, love involves two components. One of them is to will somebody's good, to work in will for your good. But the second component is a desire for union. Love means I want to be in relationship with you. I, I want to be connected with you somehow in some appropriate way. And, and so then she says, guilt is when I'm afraid that because the other person feel wronged by me, they don't will my good. They want to punish me or do something that's going to be bad for me. Mm -hmm. But shame, she said, is really connected to that other dimension of love. It is to feel like no one will want to be connected with me. No one will want to be in union with me. And she says, that's why shame is always connected with a sense of something like ugliness or unloveliness. I am not worthy of being loved. And that's why guilt can be healed by forgiveness. But you can't forgive shame. Yeah. And for shame to be healed, um, I have to be known and accepted and loved. And so 
that's where shame will cause me to hide and keep me from the very kind of relationship that is my only hope for being healed. And part of what I hope for all of us on this journey together, part of why I hope we can be the fellowship of the withered hand where uh, we celebrate the recognition of personal inadequacy is that we can come before each other in uncoerced, appropriate, healthy ways with our scars and our wounds and our flaws and people like me that are so addicted to trying to present a good image can just die to that. And uh, in deep and complete ways with somebody that we trust fully and then in appropriate ways, just constantly with each other uh, to know and to be known so that we can be healed. And I hope that's what you're experiencing. Rick, thanks for this time. You bet. <laughs>